Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California today. Bob is off on assignment, uh, but we are joined by a uh, guest who has going to give us a really good, interesting interview and discussion today. Uh, We're going to be talking about Rojava, which is the autonomous Kurdish region in northeast Syria. Uh, We are joined by Arthur Pai, who is a writer and organizer based in the Pacific Northwest. He is a member of the Emergency Committee for Rojava and recently returned from Northeast Syria, where he lived for a year conducting research and interviews about the Rojava revolution. Uh, Arthur, welcome to the Green and Red podcast. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Yep. And just a quick background, the, the Kurdish autonomous areas emerged out of the Syrian civil war which resulted from Arab Spring uprisings there in North and East Syria, which is an epicenter of conflict located between Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and other other countries. The YPG and YPJ are people's defense units. Militias have fought with the Syrian and Turkish governments, excuse me, fought against the Syrian and Turkish governments and the Islamic State. Uh, In more recent events, Turkey has been bombing Rojava's civilian infrastructure for the uh, over the last week, and the Biden administration wants to send Turkey a fleet of new F-16s. And you know, to put this in context, what we're seeing in the news right now is we're seeing a lot of news about, you know, Hamas and Israel and, and Gaza. But there's also this other conflict that's been happening in the Middle East for a long time as well. And so Arthur's going to be uh, talking to us about that today. So uh, Arthur, maybe just to kick it off, could you actually just tell our listeners for people who aren't familiar? What is uh, Rojava? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, it's a gigantic topic, which sometimes has enough acronyms that we call it alphabet soup. Um, so I'll try to kind of whittle it down to its essence. Um, like you said, Rojava is uh, Rojava itself as a word means West Kurdistan in Kurdish, um, which is talking about the part of historic Kurdistan that is situated within the nation state, which we now call Syria. Um, and like you said, within the context of the Syrian civil war, in a power vacuum that arose when uh, the regime basically could no longer hold on to the parts of Syria, uh, which were home to the the Kurdish people. The Kurdish people are like an ethnic minority, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, the Kurdish free, freedom movement, which is like a revolutionary movement, which has a whole history, which we'll also touch on, um, seized on this moment and basically declared autonomy. Um, and when they did that, they implemented this radical program of grassroots democracy, anti-capitalist economics, feminism. And right now, um, after about 10 years, 11 years of formal autonomy, um, Roughly one third of Syria and and a third of the population is governed or administered within the system, which is now formally called the autonomous administration of northeast Syria. And when we say the autonomous administration, 
um, it sounds like a state-like stru like structure, but it's actually an explicitly anti-state project. Um, so that's where the, the word autonomy comes in. So um, the way that the system works is that power and initiative starts down at the base at the most local level possible in what they call communes, which are like directly democratic neighborhood councils. And those councils are federated all the way up from this like hyper local level to like municipal level out to regional and the whole autonomous administration in Northeast Syria. Um, so anyway, it has a lot of ins and outs and, and we can get into the weeds later, but, but again, it's, it's a revolutionary project that's situated in North and East Syria. Um, and it works as an autonomous region right now. We hear a lot about the militia, the, the Kurdish militias, the autonomous militias, uh, and the YPG and the YPJ, maybe actually just explain to us a little bit about what, what those are. The first thing that may come to mind for people who have heard something or seen something about this like these images, which were often, you know, very like uh, romanticized and fetishized. But, you know, it's the image of a Kurdish woman with an AK-47 and a floral scarf. Right. So what does that mean? There's an all women's army in northeast Syria um, and it's called the YPJ, which is a Kurdish acronym for um, the women's protection units. And that is an autonomous women's structure that's parallel to a group called the YPG which is a Kurdish acronym meaning the People's Protection Units. Um, and both of these structures came out of the Kurdish Freedom Movement. They're basically the self-defense forces uh, of this movement and of this region. And they were formed originally to defend their communities, uh, not just from the regime, but especially from like jihadist groups uh, like al-Nusra and ISIS that started to fill this, this vacuum and join the conflict, uh, most of which were one or another outgrowth of Al-Qaeda. And so these are structures that come out of the Kurdish freedom movement, but they're not Kurdish only structures. So there's also Arabs fighting in these militias, um, Armenians, uh, Yazidis, Assyrians, um, many of which have their own autonomous militias, which are like sister organizations, which now are kind of federated together into a military alliance that's called the Syrian Democratic Forces or the SDF. Um, so it's hard not to get bogged down again in all of these acronyms. But the basic idea is that there is an alliance of but democratically minded autonomous militias, which share enough of an ideology to support this project in Rojava of like decentralized local government. And they have been the primary force fighting ISIS, um, they're the force that uh, defeated ISIS territorially, so ISIS no longer holds cities or territory, um, although ISIS is still carrying out basically sleeper cell attacks. Um, and so some of the work that these militias are now having to do, besides uh, defending their, their region from attacks from Turkey, to, which is to the north, um, is to kind of <laughs> have paradoxically run like a revolutionary counterinsurgency campaign against a fascist insurgency, which is being led by by ISIS. Um, so trying to find these like sleeper cells um, that are carrying out attacks against civilians and, and military targets alike in, in the region. Um, but just one more thing to emphasize the importance of this autonomous women's militia, something I failed to mention uh, earlier, which is fundamental to the project in Rojava, is this idea of women's freedom this idea of women's autonomy. So 
um, it's not just that women in Rojava have organized themselves, but it's that down to the the like formal social contract itself of the autonomous region, women's autonomy is institutionalized. So what does that mean? Um, in every structure of these like federated bodies of, of self-governance from the neighborhood on up, um, wherever there's a position of like leadership or responsibility, they have a co-chair system. And that means that it has to be two people and one of them at least has to be a woman. Um, on top of this, you have autonomous women's structures in all of the different structures of society, not just the structures of governance, but also various civil society organizations, as well as the military structures. You have women who've organized their own autonomous organizations alongside these mixed gender um, organizations. And they see that as a part of the their own revolutionary paradigm. So um, without getting into the weeds of, of the history, basically the ideology of the movement um, sees the state itself as an obstacle to human freedom, an obstacle to freeing themselves, not only as the Kurdish people, but as all the diverse peoples of the Middle East. And they see overcoming patriarchy as actually fundamental to that. So as opposed to this like old left idea that, you know, maybe feminism will come after the class struggle, they have a completely different approach that sees basically capitalism and the state as just the most institutionalized forms of patriarchy itself. So when they create a women's militia, it's not just to like organize women to fight against ISIS, it's like central to their political project. This very much, you know, sounds like it's in the vein of anarchism and Zapatismo and and feminism and and you know social ecology and things. How do they how do they see themselves fitting into that into that mix? Yeah, really good question. Um, you know, you wouldn't be the first person to, especially, to point out the parallels with with Zapatismo, um, and and the movement itself is aware of this. Um, and one of the biggest similarities to the Zapatistas, I would say, is that they started out so this. The lineage of this ideology and of this broader Kurdish freedom movement really goes back to the founding of the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers Party in Turkey or North Kurdistan, depending on who you talk to. Um, and this is like a traditional national liberation movement that was founded in uh, the 70s in Turkey. And in a lot of ways, they started out with an ideology that was Marxist-Leninist, national liberationist, very much in the vein of like, uh, the resistance in Vietnam and Cuba, these national liberation movements, which took place all over the world. Well, what happened is they they started out with this paradigm and their goal was to create an independent socialist Kurdistan as a nation state. But over the course of their struggle, and especially not only after the fall of the Soviet Union, but after the imprisonment of their leader, uh, Abdullah Ocalan there was like a dramatic ideological transformation that took place. And part of that transformation was a reassessment of this ideology that they were founded on, and especially a reassessment of the state itself and of patriarchy, like I was just mentioning. And so in a lot of ways, this does parallel, right? Like the transformation that happened with the Zapatistas, you have like Marxist-Leninists who very much in the vein of like Che Guevara and the national liberation struggles of the the mid 20th century and the Zapatistas, they, they, over the course of their struggle and especially in the mixing of like this 
left intellectual culture with indigenous Mayan culture, they they had a transformation too, and came to similar conclusions about the idea of bottom up uh, revolution, the idea of autonomy, the idea of democracy, all these things as being central to overcoming capitalism rather than sort of like tangential to it. Um, and so one of it's worth you mentioned anarchism as well one of the biggest influences on the Kurdish freedom movement that led to kind of the ideology that they have today, which they call democratic confederalism, was the fact that when Abdullah Ojalan was in prison, his lawyers got him a copy of Murray Bookchin's The Ecology of Freedom, which had been translated into Turkish. And I, th I think it's sometimes this story is sort of oversimplified, like the PKK, read Bookchin and then everything changed. I think that's a bit reductionist, but a lot of things were converging, right? They were already developing their critique of patriarchy. They were even already developing their critique of the state after the fall of the Soviet Union, seeing it as one of the fundamental failures of like quote unquote real socialism. But I think Bookchin really distilled a lot of these ideas and took like a long view of history and the emergence of hierarchy over human civilization. And that really transformed the ideology of, of Ojalan, which led to him putting out a series of writings, which now are the foundation for the movement in all parts of Kurdistan, not just uh, the PKK itself, but other organizations inspired by it. So it's really a hybrid. They don't call themselves anarchists. Uh, they don't call themselves communists. Um, they they proudly fly the flag of socialism, but they call for like an anti-state democratic form of socialism. You know, one of the things I read is that part of the reason that they were able to gain this sort of autonomous area is that uh, Assad had tried to leave them alone in order to, while, while he was like fighting the civil war, which allowed right. them to gain this to gain this you know geography and now that we see this very clearly you know horizontalist left militia you know yeah. there how is how is the syrian I have, I have this for yeah. other governments too but how is the syrian government respond respond to it now do they how much of a threat did they see yeah it's a really good question the answer is a little complicated there's there's a really fluid delicate delicate balance of power taking place um, since the civil war, which is as much a balance of like real material forces um, as it is of ideology as well. But basically, um, you know, if you go back before the Syrian civil war, historically the Syrian state, right, uh, is run by the Ba'athist party. This is an Arab nationalist party. Uh, very, authoritarian, very authoritarian. Extremely authoritarian, right? This is a, a dictatorship before Bashar al-Assad, it was Hafez al-Assad, his, his father. Um, in some ways they had like, they used the word socialism, but it, it was an extremely authoritarian regime and it was an Arab nationalist regime. So what does that mean for Kurds? It means they have no rights. Um, so much like Kurds within Turkey, their language was banned. Uh, their very existence in a lot of way was not even acknowledged. Um, so Kurds within Syria were not allowed to own land for a long time, um, did not have access to passports, the same educational opportunities, resources. Um, they weren't allowed to speak their language. Um, all these things are true in Turkey. And, and, and these patterns of oppression have led to 
the Kurdish freedom movement in the first place. So the Kurdish freedom movement sees the Assad regime as, as an enemy in a very real sense because historically it has oppressed Kurdish people. But this uprising happens against the Assad regime, which in its initial phases includes very broad democratic demands to like democratize Syria, right? Um, we all know. You know, we're seeing in Tunisia and Egypt and the Arab Spring. Exactly, exactly. Coming directly out of the Arab Spring. Um, and the regime responds with brutal repression. One of the things that happens in the middle of that conflict is that it militarizes quickly and ex- and to an extreme degree, and then becomes subject to like an influx and takeover by various jihadist factions, Islamist factions, many of which were like directly funded by the Emirates and and things, Gulf Gulf nations. Um, and these movements, as Islamist movements, and especially as like um, still Arab nationalist, but anti-Assad opposition even, still rejected the idea of Kurdish autonomy, Kurdish identity, Kurdish rights. And so the movement kind of had to find a third way. And so without getting too bogged down in the weeds of it, basically what happened is the regime became so bogged down in their own fight to hold on to power, they had to concentrate their forces around the capital because there was an all-out civil war that was trying to topple the government. And way out in the north and the east where the Kurdish people live, um, in these very like undeveloped parts of Syria for the most part, um, Kurdish people like were uh, the, the regime forces were weakened. In some places, they all out just left. Some places there were short skirmishes. Um, they were able to kind of declare autonomy. And over the years, there's been kind of a push pull. Basically, um, because of the emergence of ISIS as this all out, almost unprecedented genocidal, you know, Islamo fascist movement, um, as well as direct attacks from Turkey. The Kurdish movement has has seen the regime as kind of like a third tier enemy. The regime has, for the most part, not been actively attacking uh, the movement. Why? Not because they like them, not because there's any sort of political friendship or or alliance. They want to crush them as well, but they just can't. Um, the, the Kurdish-led forces um, are now heavily armed. They have their own functioning structures of governance. They have the strongest economy in Syria. Um, and they have a lot of support. And the, the government can't afford to take them on while fighting the opposition. So there's little pockets where control ha- of territory has a kind of back and forth push and pull, but for the most part, the most active enemies have been ISIS and Turkey. And so there's just kind of a pragmatic understanding that that at the same in the same way that the regime can afford to fight a war on all fronts, the the revolution also can't afford to fight a war on all fronts in Rojava. So both of them see themselves in, in opposition. The the movement wants to decentralize all of Syria and they're open about that. They they have uh, the political leadership of the autonomous administration is called the Syrian Democratic Council. They have formal proposals to democratize all of Syria within this framework of like local grassroots democracy and a pluralistic democracy, right? So that Syria shouldn't just be for Arab people, but should be 
a diverse democracy that includes formal representation of all the diverse peoples. And the regime wants to go back to the way that it was, wants to control all of it, wants to maintain Arab supremacy. One question I have, because ISIS is a top tier foe, maybe maybe the top tier foe for them, you know, the U.S. special forces had uh, been on the ground there as well, fighting with uh, different Kurdish militias, and they were pulled at some point, I think, under the Trump administration because of relationship with the Turks. And I'm just wondering if you could, I mean, it seems, seems like there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, the friend of my friend is my enemy. And then that moves around quite a bit. Yeah. Another, another really important and really big messy topic, but it's good you brought it up. Um, so the U S involvement goes, goes back to the earlier days of, of, the Syrian civil war. Originally, the U.S. was trying to actively overthrow Assad by by arming and supporting various like jihadist factions that were fighting the regime. That didn't work out too well. They obviously hadn't learned lessons of Afghanistan and the Mujahideen. Yeah, right. Um, not surprising, right? Um, the United States' role overall, as far as their motivations, of course, in Syria, much like their motivations anywhere, they have their own political geopolitical interests. They're, they're not there to support, they're sure as hell not there to support the Rojava revolution in any political sense. But um, circumstances came together in such a way that in, in 2014, 2015, the city of Kobani, which was uh, traditionally a Kurdish city on the border of Turkey, but on the Syrian side, was under siege by ISIS. And ISIS was making rapid gains, looked like it was going to uh, take over the whole region had stolen unfathomable amounts of former U.S. military uh, weaponry from the Iraqi government, which had in many areas like collapsed almost without a fight. Um, and the U.S. under Obama was forced to make a, a decision, and 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 it's important to emphasize this was a very reluctant decision. They knew what they were doing. They knew that this was a revolutionary movement that did not share the ideology of the U.S. empire, but they showed an impressive capacity to fight ISIS on the ground. And so everybody expected Kobani to fall and for ISIS to take over the city and consolidate their control all the way up to the border of Turkey. But it didn't happen. And for months on end, these Kurdish fighters, armed with basically rifles and grenades, no heavy weaponry, no air support, of course, not a single tank, nothing like this, held off ISIS um, to an unbelievable degree, but eventually the U.S. intervened. And what they did was they they decided that they would drop weapons um, and provide air support and start bombing ISIS targets. Um, and long story short, it worked. It was in military, in strict military terms, it was kind of a winning combination. And the, the YPG, the, the Kurdish-led militia, went on to... Um, form this broader coalition of kind of more democratic-minded forces in Syria called the Syrian Democratic Forces to not just defend Kobani, but then moved on to liberate every inch of territory that ISIS held in Syria. And they did that in coordination with the U.S., especially coordination with U.S. airstrikes, but also a certain degree of coordination on the ground with a small number of ground troops. Um, It's important to emphasize, too, that the U.S. has never provided any political support 
to Rojava. It's always been strictly a military support. And that within that military support, it's only been strictly in anti-ISIS operations. So at the same time that they're doing this, this limited co coordination, which to be fair, like the movement sees it's very essential to their survival um, uh, in operations against ISIS, the U.S. won't lift a finger against Turkey. Of course, it's a major NATO ally. And so when Turkey invaded in 2018 and 2019, the U.S. didn't do anything. You mentioned Trump pulling out U.S. troops. He threatened to pull out U.S. troops, which, by the way, there's only like 900 basic, basically like special operations units. They were along the border and just their existence there was preventing Turkey from invading because they would have to basically go through U.S. troops. And Turkey can't afford as a NATO ally to to kill U.S. soldiers for obvious reasons. And Biden basically cut a deal with Erdogan. He said, go for it and pulled troops, ended up just pulling troops from the border, moving them to other areas. And predictably, um, Turkey invaded um, through these invasions. Turkey has like committed unspeakable acts of ethnic cleansing, demographic change, mm -hmm. uh, in both the region of Afrin and Serikanya now, hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced. And the U.S. is directly in, complicit in these things. What kind of jets does Turkey use to bomb Kurdish targets and other, like, not just military targets, by the way, civilian targets in northern Syria? U.S.-made F-16s. Right. U.S. parts in these uh, Turkish drones also used to constantly terrorize um, people in northeast Syria. I mean, Turkey's but one of the top, uh, after, like, Israel and Ukraine... You know, Turkey is one of the top recipients of, of U.S. military aid. Exactly. And that's, I think, really important to emphasize because there are just to like jump into the kind of like the messiness of the conversation. There are, you know, many, um, unfortunately, many supposedly like principled leftists who will like completely reject the idea of the Rojava revolution, reject the idea of supporting it. Out of this kind of like the enemy of the enemy is my friend and the opposite is also true sense know that um, basically if if um, there's any relationship between U.S. soldiers and the Syrian Democratic Forces, then real anti-imperialists will not touch Rojava with a 10 foot pole. But I think there's 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 a real lack of nuance there and to me it's not even a principled position it's an important thing to understand and let me tell you people on the ground there absolutely understand that the united states is not their real friend that the united states has and will continue to abandon them and betray them mm -hmm. um, that the u.s has their own selfish interests in the reason in the region and that there's there are risks with like receiving any kind of support from them whatsoever but the choice that they were given was was no choice at all in kobani they could have either submitted themselves to be genocided by isis or they could accept military aid i i think that it, that's no choice choice at all and and a lot of the folks making these arguments you know ironically probably supporters of like old left like soviet union politics and let me tell you there was a very well-known military alliance between stalin and the united states they were not friends by any means, but they had a shared interest in fighting the Nazis at a time. You could you could view it in a similar way. You know, this that's how war works. It's not a friendship. It's not a political alliance. It's it's a war. It's messy. Right. Hey, folks, you're listening to the Green and Red podcast, where we interview guests like Noam Chomsky and Andrew Basevich. 
We also have shows on cultural icons like Johnny Cash and Woody Guthrie and the Godfather movies. And we talk to scores of organizers and activists who tell us what is happening in the streets and in the back country. So check us out. Yeah, and I'm Bob Azenko. And as always, uh, Scott and I want to thank you for listening, for watching, for supporting us. Uh, and we hope we continue to do that. The first thing we ask is that you share this, let people know that we're out there and we're doing something that I think is different. We have a good niche, I think, in left podcast. And uh, we talk to really cool people and, uh, about really important issues. Um, follow us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, go to our webpage, which is on uh, in the screen. And, uh, um, you know, if you really like us and if you have a, a, a little uh, extra change around um, jingles or folds, uh, uh, you can help us out by going to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hitting that support button and make a one-time donation. Or you can check us out at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a patron. Uh, we'll see you again real soon. Turkey has declared itself, you know, an, an, an enemy of the achievements of the revolution in, in Rojava. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just this week, uh, you know, we were talking before we started recording about Turkey's bombing of Rojava's civilian infrastructure and, and, and things, al- uh, things along those lines. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what you're hearing from on the ground there. Uh, you know, what sort of impacts this is having um, and if this is going to, you know, the right now, as we all know, there's a media swirl around what's going on in Gaza. And, uh, but I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what will be the impact of, of what's been happening with the Turks and, and Rojava just in the last week or two? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I appreciate you bringing this up because it's it's honestly a very dire, very urgent situation. Um, it's it's true that that Turkey sees itself as an enemy of the Rojava revolution. Um, of course, it uses a rhetoric of anti-terrorism. It uses a rhetoric of national security. Um, but to really understand what's happening, we have to see that Turkey is is also an ultra nationalist uh, state. It has been since its founding. Um, even going back to like so-called progressives, like, uh, and, it, and it's taken even a more authoritarian turn since Erdogan has has taken over too. Correct? It has, especially although the nationalism has been a constant strain. Uh, absolutely, has taken a more authoritarian turn. Um, and so under Erdogan, who now, since uh, the quote-unquote election earlier this year, is entering his third decade in power as as a head of state. Um, Erdogan basically has used um, the existence of the PKK, which is an insurgent movement uh, within Turkey that is openly fighting the Turkish state for for the rights of the Kurdish people. Um, It uses this as a pretext to do whatever it wants to justify its own expansionist genocidal policies. Um, So what does that look like in Northeast Syria? as I mentioned earlier, Turkey has invaded the region of Afrin already, the region of Serikonye. Um, but more recently, we've seen a dramatic escalation um, in Turkish aggression in the region, just literally in recent days within the week. Um, the way that that's manifesting is that they are basically 
declaring an all-out war on the civilian infrastructure, the vital infrastructure of, of the region. Um, they've even said this explicitly. It, it, it should be mentioned that uh, the pretext that Turkey is giving is an attack that 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 was claimed by by the PKK in Ankara a week ago or so, um, which was against uh, basically a police station outside of the Interior Ministry that uh, injured two police officers. Um, it's somehow using this as a pretext, providing no evidence, but claiming that uh, there's a direct connection between this attack and northeast Syria. Um, but it used this as a pretext to declare an all-out war. And and Turkish ministers basically said, um, they called it YPG infrastructure, whatever that means, that the very infrastructure of northeast Syria is now a target. Um, and so what did they do? They started bombing. They started bombing energy facilities. They have bombed oil wells, electrical plants, uh, factories, water facilities, food facilities, grain silos, hospitals, literally hospitals. So now what's happening, about 2 million people are without electricity as winter is drawing near. Um, civilians are obviously being killed as these targets are being bombed. Um, but basically Turkey's goal as we understand it, is is to make the region unlivable. That's the tactic that they're using. They have done outright ground invasions and occupations of territory in Rojava, but um, increasingly because of the geopolitical situation and Turkey's need to get at least some form of tacit approval from the U.S. or uh, Russia, who respectively control the airspace in uh, in northern Syria. They need that to carry out a ground invasion effectively, or at least to win it, basically, against the SDF. And they haven't quite been able to, to muster that. So what have they been doing? They've been using drones all out to terrorize the civilian population, to carry out regular assassinations um, of political figures, um, longtime committed movement activists, women's rights activists, um, not just military by any means, but many, many civilian targets. Um, to kind of create a climate of fear, a climate of um, instability, uncertainty, um, and increasingly to just physically destroy the infrastructure that's keeping people alive, that's making the region livable. So they want to see a mass exodus of the region. They want to clear out these areas so that they, it's easier to occupy in the future. Um, and they also want to create dissatisfaction with the project of building the autonomous administration so that the people in the region eventually basically blame the revolution for their for their problems so there's a lot that they can do to attack the revolution without as actually invading on the ground and we're seeing that play out right now on a staggering scale um and just to mention again this is all with support from u.s planes u.s parts and like diplomatic cover right so when the United States, like the State Department will put out these statements like, we call on all parties to de-escalate and honor ceasefire agreements. Well, what, is, what does that mean? I'm, I'm, you're calling on uh, a COVID-19 hospital technician to de-escalate the conflict? I mean, they're being bombed. It's civilian targets, right? There's an aggressor, and you're providing material and diplomatic support to this aggressor. Um, so... It's 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 uh 
it's pretty hard to see it. Those of us who are already, you know, lefties and anti-imperialists, of course, it's not surprising to see that the United States is not jumping to the rescue of this revolutionary project. Um, but it is a, it is like a hypocrisy which we need to be calling out forcefully and doing everything that we can to push in the small ways that that we're able um, to increase diplomat, to push for diplomatic support, and concretely to end military aid to Turkey. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that. Uh... You know, U.S. military strategy, at least in the in the modern term, pro, you know, it predates, but it predates that. But you know, targeting civilian infrastructure was part of the strategy, and you know, Desert Storm in '91 was part of the strategy with the U.S. bombing of the former Yugoslavia in '99. It's definitely the the strategy in 2003 in the invasion of Iraq, and so the the fact that our allies, and you know, this yeah. is also what the Israelis are doing in Gaza, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, the the fact that our allies that we fund are using the same strategies is like not surprising at all. And and you know it's, it goes back further than that. It's what the U.S. did in World War II, and it's what the U.S. did in North Vietnam. So, no, it's absolutely true. It's straight out of the you know imperial playbook, um, and that's what it is. Uh, it's it's also imperialism. It's just that I think it's important that we can recognize that not only you know getting back to this question of kind of. How do we define anti-imperialism? How do we take a stance on this issue as principled anti-imperialists in a region where the U.S. is playing a role? I think we should see that the U.S. is not the only country that's capable of imperialism and colonialism at the same time, right? And to see the role that the U.S. is playing in supporting imperialism of other nations. Um, and Turkey is, is, a, is a great case in point there. Um, and I'm sure there's some geopolitics around Ukraine and Russia with the Turks where Biden absolutely. does not want to, Biden doesn't want to, uh, you know, alienate Erdogan uh, because of because of that, because of that front. It's only strengthened Turkey's position because uh, just like you said, I, I would not say that the dynamic is new. It's basically the same overall dynamic, but Turkey's position has been strengthened and, and Biden's reluctance is 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 largely a result of the Ukraine conflict. You know, one thing one thing you had mentioned is that, you know, scandalized New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez, who was the uh, chair of the foreign was the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, was actually being a bit of a block on the sale of uh, F-16s to Turkey. Uh, and, you know, the Emergency Committee on Rojava, who you work with, mm -hmm. has been lobbying and advocating uh, with members of Congress around around this aid package. And I'm wondering if you could just actually speak speak to that uh, a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Um, so it's true, uh, you know, as, as bombs continue to rain down on civilians in Northeast Syria, uh, some with drones, but some with American-made F-16s, uh, Mr. Joseph Robinette Biden is pushing Congress to sell a whole new package, a whole new fleet of um, F-16s, in addition to uh, modernization kits. So Turkey already has US F-16s, um, but it's been a while since they received them and they require like updates in their, I don't know, their onboard technology and their weapon systems um, to continue to function. Um, and so that's that's a part of this package that Turkey is requesting. Um, of course, this is all part of these like higher level games of, um, you know, uh, some of these Scandinavian countries accession into NATO during the Ukraine conflict. And without getting into the nitty gritty of all of that, uh, Biden is continuing to push Congress to approve this sale. Um, 
the way that the law works, as far as we understand, is that the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate has a really strong point of of leverage, can basically veto um, a sale like this, which the president cannot just push through unilaterally. Um, previously, like you said, it was Bob Menendez in this position. He's had a whole scandal um, related to his relationship. And he's been indicted. I should have mentioned yeah, that before. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a very juicy story, which we don't have time to get into. We encourage everybody to, to look into it. Um, but yeah, it's related to his relationship with the Egyptian government. Um, so he's still t- technically a senator, but he's being indicted and and he's no longer the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. So there's a new chair of the Foreign Relations Committee. His name is Senator Ben Cardin. Uh, he's from the state of Maryland. He has shown uh, like public criticism of Turkey's human rights record, has shown a reluctance around the F-16 sale, um, but is also showing some signs of possibly wavering. So he's saying things like, well, we're going to look at all the facts. We're going to review the details. I'm going to talk to the president about this and we'll figure out what makes the most sense. That's very, very concerning. Um, and so something that we've been doing at ECR, Emergency Committee for Rojava, is we've been trying to start build, building some pressure um, against Ben Cardin. Something people can do if they want to get more involved in this, they can uh, go to defendrojava.org. Uh, where we try to put up like toolkits for people to contact their Congress members um, and give them talking points and contact information for people like Ben Cardin. But it's true right now where the, the, the fate of this sale is basically in Ben Cardin's hands. Um, is, there, and, is there a Kurdish diaspora in the U.S. that you've worked with? There is, and some of them uh, you know, are active in, in the Emergency Committee for Rojava. Um, it's limited in a lot of ways. I, I think it's true that like a majority of the Kurds that live in the U.S. are actually from uh, the part of Kurdistan, which is in Iraq. Yeah, that um, would make sense. Yeah, because of the history of like the U.S. role in that region. Um, but there, there are Kurds from you know, I have friends from Bakur, from like Turkish part of Kurdistan, from Rojava. Um, there also is. A U.S. office of the Syrian Democratic Council, which is the political leadership of Rojava, um, that operates in Washington D.C. Um, so there's a woman named uh, Sinan Mohammed, who is a Kurdish woman from from Afrin in Rojava, and she, she lives in the U.S. now, and she's like basically a, a diplomatic representative of of Rojava to the extent that like a non-state actor can can have a something like an embassy. Um, and so we we try to coordinate with everybody that we can coordinate with, um, but we kind of see our role as trying to build a grassroots solidarity movement. And there's different pieces to that. So one part of that is like engagement with the Kurdish community. Um, another part of that is trying to build relationships with like social movements in the U.S., right? Something that we've also been doing is like building bridges between movements in the U.S. and movements in Rojava, like to break it into pieces, right? So like cooperative movements in the US, putting them directly in touch with worker cooperatives in Rojava, or like feminist organizations, trying to facilitate dialogue and solidarity with feminist organizations in uh, in Rojava. This kind of actually, the, the question I wanted to ask earlier is, yeah. is kind of related to this, is that there's a, a good number of American Americans and, and Westerners which have uh, like yourself gone and reported, but then others have gone and 
um, have gravitated there to join the militias and support. There, there's a somewhat famous interview from that was on Chapo Trap House with a with an American leftist who had, who had spent time there. Um, and I'm just wondering how you know, and also the the romantic. Uh, there's the romantic version where it's like the it's the new Lincoln Brigade, right, from the like Spanish Civil War. And, yeah. I, and I'm wondering, you know, how much of a, a factor are like West are foreign, you know. I don't want to call them foreign fighters, but like foreign members of the yeah. militia, a, a force, a factor. Yeah, they they call them internationalists. Um, they're very much a factor. Um, they're during the ground war against ISIS, especially. There were hundreds of uh, internationalist volunteers who traveled to Rojava and fought uh, alongside the YPG or with within um, the YPG and YPJ, right? So they're like the mixed and the women's autonomous units. Uh, so both men and women from uh, from around the world, um, and there, like you said, there's there's a lot of like high profile examples of this. It's, there's been a number of books that have been written uh, in many different ways. Um, there also was very interestingly during the the height of the war against ISIS, it wasn't just leftists who joined. There were also some people with kind of mixed political motivations, as you can imagine. Who wanted to go fight this war against um, uh, ISIS, including a number of like U.S. military vets? Um, but for the most part, I think it's people who were like inspired by the political project and wanted to travel there in solidarity with the project to help defend it. And yeah, a lot of people. You mentioned the, the Abraham Lincoln brigades, which, for listeners that aren't familiar with it, right, was like the international volunteer unit in the Spanish Civil War um, that was finding the Spanish fascists and defending the the Republic or the Revolution, depending on kind of who we're talking about. Um, and so much like this, there's there's been a structure created actually within the YPG and the YPJ. There's something called YPG International and YPJ International. And in those structures, foreign volunteers uh, join um, alongside uh, like Kurdish and Arab and other local fighters. Um, but it's also important to mention, I think that there's civilian structures that people join in as volunteers too. So it's not just as fighters that internationalists have traveled to Rojava, but people have done all sorts of work there in civil society. Um, and people like myself have traveled there to conduct research, do interviews, try to learn um, more about the revolution and kind of help translate um, its experience, its ideas and, and the words of its direct participants to a broader audience or like a Western audience, an international audience. Um, there's all kinds of different work. There's media work, there's civil society work, there's meat and there's uh, medical work, um, anything you can imagine. Um, and you, that you had, you had actually talked about going to Aleppo after the February earthquake. And, uh, and I'm, did did some of those folks who were doing civil work go and do relief work, et cetera? Or is it over there? You, you had actually talked about more like grassroots collective relief that was going on in Aleppo. And yeah. actually just talk, just talk about that a little bit. And if there was any internationalists participated in that. Yeah. Um, in in the case of the the, the earthquake in February, um, the the region was like rocked by this earthquake in, in Rojava. I myself was in Kamishla, which is like far on the, the eastern side. Um, 
And in the majority of Rojava, while while the buildings shook and we all had to run out of the building, people weren't hurt. The buildings hadn't collapsed like they had in these like devastated parts of Turkey and far western Syria. Um, but yeah, after the earthquake, I I traveled to Aleppo um, to to cover like the aftermath of of the earthquake. Um, and for people who don't know, Aleppo is in far western Syria, so the other side, and it's almost entirely controlled by the regime. But in this one little hill in the north of the city, there's a neighborhood called Sheikh Masood, and it's a, an autonomous Kurdish-majority neighborhood, which governs itself in the same structure, in the same philosophy as the Rojava revolution, even though it's like isolated and basically under siege by the regime, which controls who they let in, what supplies they let in. Um, so myself and some other journalists, we were able to get in and like a week into the earthquake, the regime had still not let in supplies. I mean, they couldn't even get blankets or heating gas or medicine into this this neighborhood because the regime was just blocking it off. Um, and this is a place that un unlike other parts of Rojava, like uh, this is a place where like buildings had fully collapsed. You know, people have been killed and also people who whose buildings did not fully collapse. These buildings were damaged and there was a tremendous climate of like fear that buildings were still going to collapse. And so people were displaced and mass from their homes, living out in the streets. It was the winter. It was cold. It happened to be raining. Um, and like you mentioned, some I mentioned to you like before we were recording was in this little neighborhood that's totally under siege has no resources, but is nonetheless organized in this like grassroots democratic way. Um, it was really inspiring to see how people came together and were able to respond to a situation like that, right? So in, just like elsewhere in Rojava, um, the structures of governance were based in these like hyper-local neighborhood communes. Structures were like basically like block by block, people knew all of their neighbors, um, they had their own assemblies, and they were organizing to make sure that every family was accounted accounted for, um, that their needs were being met. If they needed a place to be housed, that they would find unused space. There was not a square inch of the neighborhood um, that was, you know, a, whether it's an office space or a closet or anything that was not being used to house a displaced family. Um, and and meeting with one of the council co-chairs there said to me like. Basically, I'm paraphrasing. He said something like, "We we may not have material things here, but the people live with one heart." Um, and it was just incredibly moving and inspiring to see what um, not just how people govern themselves under this kind of like a paradigm, but how a community that's organized in this like directly democratic way can respond to a disaster in a dynamic way, can actually meet people's needs, can take care of people um, in a more dynamic way than than this place like literally across the street on the other side of the checkpoint where people living under the regime were really struggling because they didn't have that kind of social structure where their neighborhood is actually like people are taking care of each other. So I thought that was very inspiring. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's an important message and it, that actually makes me, you know, friends of mine were the folks who helped start common ground hurricane relief yeah. in new Orleans after yeah. 2005. And Scott so Crow. Yeah. Yeah, Scott Crow, um, Malik Rahim. Uh, and so 
you know, that, that actually makes me, makes me think of that. It's a, it's a pretty important, uh, it's a pretty important story to tell. And I think it's actually a good sort of wrap up for what we've been, what we've been talking about. Um, yeah. Uh, one thing I, one thing I would ask is if folks want to get involved with the emergency committee for Rojava, because our, uh, our audience is mainly mainly U.S. based, and we'll put things in the show notes. But if you just want to talk a little bit about that, about how people can get involved and put pressure on Carton or put pressure on Biden, or or what have you. Absolutely, yeah. So we would love to have your listeners join us, get involved in one way or another. Um, the best way to do that is to either go to our website, which is simply defendrojava.org. Um, or to email us at info at defendrojava.org. You can also find us on any of our social media platforms um, at defendrojava. Um, and, you know, one of the things that people get when they get in touch with us is it's not just opportunities for like lobbying and advocacy. We also host study groups where we actually get to talk more kind of deeply and unapologetically about the revolutionary politics of the movement. We've done study groups about the economics of the movement. We've done study groups comparing it to Zapatismo. Um, and we also give updates about what's happening on the ground in the region. Another thing, like I mentioned earlier, is that people are part of social movement organizations in the U.S. that want to get directly in touch with the movement in Rojava, we try to help facilitate that kind of dialogue. Um, like I said, we're really trying to build like a broad-based grassroots solidarity movement in the United States. It's sorely needed, but there's also just so much potential for this because, again, I don't know, it's easy for this conversation to get sort of like bogged down in all these terrible things that are happening or all of this like really policy wonky geopolitical analysis but at the end of the day what brings most of us to like this organizing is that we're just incredibly inspired by the revolution that's happening in northeast syria it's it's not something to treat as utopia it's far from perfect in reality there somebody who's been on the ground say it's it's very messy it's full of contradictions it's full of limitations um you know we didn't have time to get into all of that today but it really is a place where the lessons of like revolutionary transformation are being learned in real time and experimented with. And people are really doing their best to create structures through which they can govern themselves autonomously and really push through to build an, a fundamentally different kind of society beyond capitalism, beyond the state, beyond patriarchy. And I think, you know, principled leftists, progressives, have just so much to learn from it um, that that even if people don't get involved in ECR, I encourage everybody to to try to learn more about this topic. There's also a lot of wonderful books and documentaries. I don't know if you want to mention them. We could throw some in the show notes. It's up to you. We can throw them. We can throw them in the show notes. Love it. Yep, uh, folks. You've been listening to Arthur Pye, a journalist who with the who works with the emergency committee for Rojava has also spent a year traveling and researching and reporting on uh, uh, what's going on in Rojava has just gave, given us a fantastic discussion about the history of Rojava and the politics and the geopolitics and everything from what small communities are doing to help each other to 
the geopolitics between the U.S. and Turkey and ISIS and Syria, et cetera. Uh, Arthur, thank you for joining us. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Scott, thank you so much for having me, man. Yeah. Keep up the great work. It's a great yep. podcast. Yep. Folks, if you like what you're hearing, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, hit that subscribe button. If you're listening to us on one of the many podcast platforms that we are on, give us a rate and review. It helps us with the algorithms. And if you really like us, make a donation to greenredpodcast.org uh, by hitting that support button on our website at greenredpodcast.org or become a patron at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. And uh, much love to everybody out there and uh, go out and misbehave. And we'll talk to you all again real soon. چند هزار سالان چاره گل نبوم دلشان دیروه البوزر داغاه شارو نرسان ای دلیان